back to the re-education. First, a brief note. Uh, I apologize to listeners. I know that we have not had the regular schedule really nailed down in 2023, but there are many great episodes in the works and more is coming. And when I can say more about the future of this podcast, I will let you know. You will be the first to know. All right. Well, on today's episode, I interview veteran journalist and investigative reporter Jeff Gerth about his latest autopsy of the media's handling of Russiagate in Columbia Journalism Review. It is a masterpiece and the most comprehensive look at how the elite press dealt with the Trump-Russia collusion story really from the very beginning. I highly recommend it. This is a topic that we've covered before on the show, but I just wanted to highlight Jeff's superb reporting and focus on the media, which I'm a part. So with that in mind, please listen. I think you'll enjoy. Since you brought up Russia, I'm looking for some clarification here. During your campaign, did anyone from your team communicate with members of the Russian government or Russian intelligence? And if so, what was the nature of those conversations? Well, the family New York Times wrote a big, long front-page story yesterday. And it was very much discredited, as you know. It was, it's a joke. And the people mentioned the story. I noticed they were on television today saying they never even spoke to Russia. So that was Donald Trump responding to a newsgasm from the old gray lady. On February 15, 2017, the New York Times published a barn burner. The FBI was investigating contacts between Donald Trump's campaign and Russian intelligence figures. They had intercepts, the headline blared. Now, this story did not come out of the blue. It was part of a series of revelations whispered to the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, the Wall Street Journal, and other outlets that began sort of piecing together a massive conspiracy between Trump and Russia. And for the most part, most of these stories really started after Trump wins the 2016 election. For example, Mike Flynn, Trump's first national security advisor had resigned two days before the big time scoop about these alleged intercepts that disclosed these contacts. And that resignation was prompted by details about his conversations with the Russian ambassador during the presidential transition that were at first leaked to David Ignatius of the Washington Post and then later followed up on the news side of both the New York Times and the Washington Post. A month earlier to this press conference that I just played, BuzzFeed published the Steele dossier, the now discredited opposition research document that claimed Trump's campaign had indeed conspired with Russia to hack and leak the emails stolen and published from the Democratic Party and the Clinton campaign before the election. Indeed, for the first few months of the Trump years, even journalists who would later distinguish themselves for their correct skepticism about the Trump-Russia story were not really buying Trump's many denials. I wouldn't count myself among them. Here is Glenn Greenwald, no Russiagator, on Democracy Now! after Trump fired FBI Director James Comey. For him to do this just two weeks after Comey made huge news by announcing that he was overseeing a criminal investigation into the Trump campaign's potential collusion with Russia, on top of which there have been very recent developments in that case of subpoenas being issued to close Trump aides. It is incredibly, um, it's just stunning that they would be so indifferent to the obvious appearance that this is about nothing more than Trump directly interfering into an investigation targeting him by removing the person spearheading it. Now, I play that clip not to criticize Glenn Greenwald, but to praise him, because in 2017, it seemed like Trump had something to hide. And fair-minded observers in the press, or if you're not in the press, 
who lacked the information that the FBI had at the time, really most people had concluded this. I say this as somebody who was critical of the Mike Flynn coverage and the leaks of his conversations with Sergey Kislyak. But even I wrote a piece about how, you know, Trump was, you know, had himself to blame for the special counsel Mueller's investigation because of the way in which he decided to fire James Comey. So that's why it's worth going back to that time story about intercepts of contacts between Trump's campaign and Russian intelligence, because that was kind of a turning point. I mean, this was something that was just lightning in a bottle. And we didn't find out until 2020 that Peter Strzok, who was the senior FBI official who opened the investigation into Trump's campaign, had prepared a detailed memo shredding that time story to ribbons after the piece came out. And that was a memo that he'd written to senior FBI leaders. He noted in the memo that the press was destroying its credibility. Now, my guest, Jeff Gerth, lingers on this episode in his exhaustive piece, and I want to quote now from it, just a snippet here. He writes, CNN quickly followed the Times story with a more modest account, noting Trump advisors had been in, quote, constant communication during the campaign with Russians known to U.S. intelligence, end quote. The White House a few days later told reporters that the two top FBI officials, Comey and McCabe, had privately told the White House that the Times story was inaccurate, with McCabe calling it, quote, bullshit. This was consistent with Stroke's analysis, but the FBI, following custom, stayed silent, according to the pool report for White House correspondence and a former government official. The White House had told the FBI it was getting crushed on the Times story, according to the pool report, which most media outlets ignored. End of quote from Girth's piece. Okay, so I share this section of Girth's story because I think it complicates a narrative many Russiagate skeptics would like to believe about the nefariousness of the elite media. It's really not that simple. Now, first of all, you have to understand, when Trump would say there's nothing to the Russia story, you know, Russia, 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 it's all a big joke. I mean, he's the same guy who was insisting that he had record crowd sizes, which were clearly not true. So even though he was the new elected president, normally an elected president would get a kind of honeymoon from the press, as they call it in Washington. You have to remember that a lot of what Trump was saying in his presidential campaign, and then after he wins the election, were just transparent kind of bullshit. So he didn't have the kind of credibility to knock down those initial reports. Now, that said, it is really worth thinking about this. Why was the FBI privately assuring President Trump that the Times story was false, he was not a target of the investigation, and then publicly offering no comment? One might say that this was the Bureau trying to restore a norm it had violated during the 2016 campaign by speaking publicly about the investigation into Hillary Clinton's private email server. But that doesn't exactly wash, because a month after the Times story that Stroke and others privately said was garbage, Comey announced the ongoing investigation into Trump's campaign at a House Intelligence Committee hearing. Now, in that same hearing, he also said he didn't think that the, that original Times story about the context was accurate. But still, you know, Comey was sort of, you know, choosing and picking and choosing, cherry picking in the Times when he would talk about ongoing investigations of the president or high profile politician or not. So the problem here, as I see it, is that in Washington, you know, for the last half century since 1972, the National Press Corps has been chasing the next Watergate, a scandal that brought down a president. I mean, we, we all know the names, the Iran-Contra scandal. There was the Scooter Libby affair with Valerie Plame during George W. Bush. And then, of course, Whitewater with President Clinton. So it seems like almost every president, with maybe the exception of Jimmy Carter and Obama, has had some kind of scandal that, you know, journalists in Washington in particular have wanted to be the next Watergate. 
Now, I have to say that in and of itself is not a bad thing because presidents of both parties have committed blunders, crimes, and cover-ups. You know, we are all we're all cracked vessels and we should not make heroes of our elected politicians. But part of the post-Watergate convention has been to report on ongoing investigations by the FBI. I want to do a little level setting here. We're not going to devote the entire show, obviously, to Watergate, but we've got to get some, you know, clear things in the background up front. Now, Watergate began with a clear crime, and that is the break-in of the Democratic National Committee headquarters. The burglars were arraigned in court. Woodward and Bernstein at the time were these Metro reporters who got onto the story and just kept digging until they were able to link the, bur the burglary to the White House. And all along, the White House kept lying about the break-in. The, they say the cover-up is worse than the crime. That's not exactly true, by the way, but in this particular case, it was like the White House kept saying it wasn't true, and Woodward and Bernstein kept finding evidence that it was. Now, a lot of what Woodward and Bernstein did was unglamorous scut work, you know, daily journalism 101, lots of phone calls, pouring through official documents, doorstops where you show up at someone's home and try to persuade them to talk to you. But Woodward also had a golden source, an embittered deputy FBI director known as Deep Throat by the name of Mark Felt. We found that out many years later, obviously. Listen to our episode, by the way, Deep Throat was no hero who often helped to guide his reporting anonymously by confirming information and sharing tidbits from the Bureau's own investigation. Now, I don't begrudge Bob Woodward for having such a great source, but when this relationship between senior FBI officials and the press becomes routinized, particularly in the context of sensitive investigations of leading political figures, the potential for mischief is enormous. Because by sharing some information, such as the existence of a surveillance warrant for junior Trump aide Carter Page, and concealing other information, such as the fact that confidential informants in 2016 pressed Trump campaign advisors and came up with nothing, the journalist is not really acting as a check on power, but rather a tool of it. A classic example is the Steele dossier. I know we've covered this a lot in the show. In 2017, BuzzFeed decided to publish the unconfirmed opposition research after CNN reported that it was important enough for James Comey to brief it to both President Obama and incoming President Donald Trump. And that was during the transition. What BuzzFeed and CNN did not know was that the FBI was unable to confirm any of it and that the principal source of the document was backing away from its most explosive claims. We only learned that at the end of 2019 from the Justice Department's Inspector General. Now, an irony here is that Woodward and Bernstein in the Trump era took polar opposite views of Russiagate for the most part during, you know, Trump's presidency. So Girth quotes Bob Woodward in his piece as saying that the press did not handle Russiagate well and he hoped that journalists would begin the painful process of introspection. Anyway, to see the two different approaches between Woodward and Bernstein, I want to play two brief clips from the two journalists with regards, I guess, to the Steele dossier. So here is Bob Woodward on CNN on January 17th, 2017. This is pretty brief. I've read those 35 pages. Uh, the quality is uh, not good. And here's Carl Bernstein much later on October 9th, 2019. Steele didn't pretend that the information was definitive that rather they were from sources, and, and he was outside Russia himself, but he had That's old right. sources uh, from when he was inside Russia, that he could communicate with some of them outside, and some through intermediaries with people who were still inside. That's right. And there are varying levels of which there is both plausibility, perhaps accuracy, uh, and 
but that it's not, it was not intended to be a definitive document. You now, in that clip, the person who is agreeing with Carl Bernstein was none other than Andrew McCabe, the former deputy to James Comey. I mean, I love the symmetry that an FBI deputy director is on stage with Carl Bernstein, you know, everything like that. What Bernstein is saying turned out to be false. But he was also accurately relaying, I think, what his sources were saying. I don't think he was fabricating anything. I think he was basically, you know, saying what his sources were telling him. And Steele's sources and subsources, I should say, were not, as Bernstein said, carryovers from his time as a British spy, who were these Kremlin insiders. Rather, he relied primarily on Igor Danchenko, a Russian national and former researcher at the Brookings Institution, also somebody who was once investigated for being a Russian spy by the FBI, ironically. Nothing came of that. And who, in turn, Danchenko would speak with his former colleagues in Russia, but they were not like super secret Kremlin insiders. There was a woman in Cyprus who wanted a job to Hillary Clinton. And he was also in touch with a Clinton insider, this guy named James Tolan, who himself was an unregistered lobbyist for Russia and a kind of a PR expert who had been around the Clintons since the 90s. So I should say, when offered a million dollars to corroborate the dossier, Christopher Steele himself refused the FBI's offer. All of this would have told anybody with a brain, you don't have to be a you know kind of lifetime career FBI G-man, that the reporting in the Steele dossier was not solid and these were not necessarily good leads. So as I said, I have, you just say, a little bit of charity, I think, for Bernstein, because I think Bernstein, like many other people who were reporting on the Steele dossier, were basically saying what their sources were saying. McCabe, on the other hand, comes out of all of this looking terrible. And here he is in that same event with Carl Bernstein complaining that the Steele dossier was only a part of the surveillance warrant application and it wasn't really essential to getting it. From the FISA court to initiate electronic surveillance on Carter Page. Right. Um, it was not the sum total of that, of that request for FISA authority. It was, a, it was part of some of the information that was in that package, um, but not all of it. I have been many times misquoted uh, from closed testimony that I gave on the Hill. So it's easy to quote someone from testimony that's not been released. That's frustrating. Um, that we would not have gotten the FISA warrant without the Steele dossier. Uh, that is not and has never been my position. Well, here is Inspector General Michael Horowitz, only two months later, exposing Andrew McCabe's lie. FBI and department officials told us the Steele reporting, quote, pushed the FISA proposal over the line, close quote, in terms of establishing probable cause. And we concluded that the Steele reporting played a central and essential role in the decision to seek a FISA order. So all of this gets back to what I call the Watergate problem. What happens when senior FBI officials turn out to be bad sources, turn out that they are using the press to manipulate the wider political climate, as McCabe some sort of demonstrates, you could say, in that clip, because I should, you know, the background here is that the House Intelligence Committee was split. The Republican, who was the chairman for a while, and then it switched, Devin Nunes, had put out a memo that basically said the FBI relied on this junky opposition research to spy on an American citizen named Carter Page. They made all these errors. And the Democrats and the Bureau itself said, no, 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 no. There was a lot of other stuff we had on Carter Page. This is all wrong and we can't get into it because it's all classified. Well, it turns out, as Inspector General Michael Horowitz says in that congressional testimony, that they needed the dossier to get the surveillance warrant. In my view, a major abuse of the FISA system. So is it the fault of journalists when their sources mislead them? 
Well, it's a tricky question because we are only as good as our sources. But once those sources prove themselves to be deceptive, this is the key point, I think journalists have an obligation not only to correct the record, but to confront and maybe even expose the source who steered them wrong. I should say I did this with Devin Nunes, who was the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. I wrote a column after, and this was a minor thing in retrospect with all the duplicity on the other side of the Russiagate. But, you know, he had said that he had been getting information with regards to unmasking from people inside the intelligence community. And it turned out that one of his major sources used to work on the committee with him and then had transferred to the White House. You can look it up. And at the time, I got a lot of praise, I guess, from the resistance types. But I do think that it's important that, you know, if you have a source who lies to you, that you should confront them and call them out. It's the only way to sort of, you know, continue to... And I have to say, I, I have talked to Devin Nunes after that. It's not like the end of the world. doesn't mean it's the end of the relationship. But it's important, I think, to, to sort of, as the journalist, to sort of assert that. Like, you know, I'm using you for information, but if you give me a bad steer, you're going to have some problems. Okay. And in my view, it's this kind of holding those folks to account is where a lot of my colleagues have really failed. Today, Andrew McCabe is, if you can believe it, an analyst for CNN. And that's unbelievable in my view. Or, I mean, he was until a few months ago, at least. Peter Strzok, he has a sinecure at Georgetown. For a while, James Comey enjoyed a Washington Post column. Now, the other part of this is kind of introspection. When the facts change, journalism, news outlets should you know, reflect those changes. So when the flagship American newspaper, the paper of record, as it used to be called, the New York Times, they have yet to do any like significant introspection on Russiagate as they did after the U.S. couldn't find the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And, you know, to the credit of CNN, you know, at the end of 2021, they they did a long piece on all the problems with the Steele dossier that came out during the investigation of John Durham. The Washington Post has corrected certain pieces that they've had. Their media critic, Eric Wemple, has done a terrific job on this. But there are lots of institutions. New York Times is not the only one. You know, MSNBC has done none of this. There's been no mea culpa from Rachel Maddow, who really used the Steele dossier as almost a kind of frame for her entire program. She was obsessed with this story. Nothing. None of these people have sort of said, all right, you know what, now that we know the full story about what this was, how this document kind of influenced the investigation, you know, we got it wrong and here's how we got it wrong. That's how you build trust with readers. You, you know, no journalist is going to be right 100% of the time. But when you get something wrong, you should be able to account and explain what you did and do so, you know, that's how we do it for most of the, you know, for the last 100 years or so. But instead, what we've seen is almost a kind of coordinated campaign to sort of denigrate Jeff Girth's reporting in the Columbia Journalism Review. I mean, just an example, Jonathan Chait, who is a, a real you know, bitter clinger. He's a dead ender when it comes to Russiagate. You know, he, he wrote a whole piece sort of dismissing the piece as just grinding a kind of pro-Trump acts, which it's if you know who Jeff Girth is, you would find that hilarious. In the afterword of Girth's own piece here, he laments that only half of the 60 journalists that he contacted bothered to get back to him. And I want to quote him here. He says, during this time, when the media is under extraordinary attack and widely distrusted, a transparent, unbiased, and accountable media is more needed than ever, he writes. Amen, brother. I agree 100%. And that's why it's sad that we haven't seen any kind of introspection, any kind of effort for the, you know, journalists, but not just the individual journalists. It's really the institutions to hold themselves accountable 
for this huge error. Because when you talk to Trump supporters and you talk to people who are kind of, you know, big MAGA types, what they will say is that, all right, you know, I realize that there's a lot of maybe sketchiness perhaps in the claims about 2020. We've gone over this. I don't think any of that's true, that it was rigged. But, you know, they, they think they are correct that Trump won an election, but he was treated as an interloper, as somebody who cheated in that election when there's no evidence that he did. Perhaps I could do another episode addressing some of the, I think, flimsy arguments from the dead enders on this that, you know, claim that, well, you know, he he tried to find out what emails WikiLeaks had. But come on, that is not working with Russia to hack or distribute, you know, emails or so forth. They were doing what I think most campaigns would do if Julian Assange announced that he had a whole trove of emails from their political opponent. You would try to find out what they were. So I've never been persuaded that that was the equivalent of collusion or, for that matter, Paul Manafort, who is a shady lobbyist who, you know, for years worked with the kind of Ukrainian president who fled to Russia in 2014 after basically violating his own promise to the Ukrainian people that he ran on, saying they would join the EU. You know, he represented this guy. He has a longtime association with someone named Konstantin Kalimnik. I mean, I don't want to get into every detail in this. My point is, is that Mueller could not find evidence of any kind of conspiracy. And a lot of people in the Democratic Party and even the media have not accepted that. And they have done whatever they could to sort of avoid any kind of accountability in this regard. I think it's in part because they see that Trump is a unique threat to the republic. That's part of it. So it justifies violating norms that they norm maybe people in the media wouldn't normally violate or people, you know, political norms that wouldn't be normally violated. And some of it's vanity, of course. Nobody likes to admit that they've made a mistake, although we all are human beings and we make mistakes. But I do think at this point, it's important to sort of look at this and say, listen, a huge mistake was made. For the first two and a half years of Donald Trump's presidency, he was treated as if he might be a Russian agent. It wasn't true. And the failure of the press to conduct a serious kind of reckoning in this regard may turn out to be its undoing because it's the polling in terms of public attitudes towards the media today is extraordinarily low and almost historically low. And I think in some ways with good reason. So I was dismayed to see a lot of the response to Jeff Gerth's reporting in the Columbia Journalism Review because I think he's doing the elite press a favor. And unfortunately, they've decided to shoot the messenger. Brothers heading that way now, I guess. He just read something, made his face turn blue. Well, I got nothing against the press. They wouldn't print it if it wasn't true. If you want to know about the gay politician. If you want to know how to drive your car. Well, dear listeners, we are very fortunate today because we have legendary journalist Jeff Gerth, a longtime investigated correspondent who worked, I think, for 30 years at the New York Times and many other mainstream publications. I'm having him on today because he is author of a four-part series for the Columbia Journalism Review that looks at the press and the president, Donald Trump, and I, I would say the mainstream media, and particularly the New York Times and the Washington Post, and 
what is sometimes known as Russiagate and how it was covered. So, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on The Re-Education. Well, thanks for having me, Eli. So let's just start off with, in broad brushstrokes, what would you sort of say your most, I mean, how many, you worked on this for a few years, right? Yeah, off and on. I mean, the, the genesis of the project dates back several years, but I kind of put it on hold. Yeah. The the project sort of originated in a conversation I had with the editor of the Columbia Journalism Review in the spring of 2019 after the the Mueller report came out. And I said he was interested in sort of my doing it in an anatomy of the media coverage of it. And I said, I had done some work for him several years earlier. So we, we had a relationship and I said, sure, let's, at that point, John Durham had just been appointed to kind of look at the origins of the investigation. So I said, well, let's, if you want me to do an autopsy, let's wait for the coroner's report, thinking that maybe in a year or two, John Durham would be done and we could see what he found. And then I could go back and juxtapose his findings with the the coverage, et cetera. Now, of course, he didn't produce his report, still hasn't. And finally, maybe sometime in 2021, I decided I'm going to start reporting this. I'm not going to wait. You know, the pandemic had hit, so that kind of threw everything off for a while. And so I started doing some interviews and worked off and on, you know, 2021 and 2022. Yeah, well, it's it's a really impressive, I would say, kind of definitive last word. You know, and I think in journalism, sometimes there's first words, we call them scoops. And then there's last words, which is like, this is what actually really happened. And I thought that this is a great example of that kind of journalism. So could you bottom line for us what you think, you know, were sort of, maybe we could call it the norms that may have been, that were violated in the coverage of Trump's possible, the investigation into the Trump campaign's ties to the Russian interference effort in the election. Sure. You know, I think, well, the first thing is to just highlight the tremendous amount of coverage there was. As I said in my piece, there was a study done, and just during the tenure of of Mueller and his investigation and stories about Trump or Russia and Mueller, there were over 500,000 stories done and over 245 million social media interactions related to those stories. And that, of course, doesn't include the first five months of of 2017. So the first thing is just the enormous depth of all the stories that took place. As for, you know, what what were some of the problems? What were some of the flaws? They they kind of ranged across the journalistic spectrum. I mean, some stories were just plain wrong, and some of those got corrected. Some of them didn't. Other stories turned out to be incomplete. And the things that were left out of them turned out to be quite important. I think as an example of that, I would say that the stories about the Carter Page FISA, which, you know, started in 2017. And then finally, when the IG came out was his report at the end of 2019, the the story of the FISA was significantly different and much more flawed than than originally written and understood. I think another interesting sort of flaw that that emerged was what I would call, you know, material omissions. In other words, leaving things out. So one example 
from the piece was the the text that Peter Strzok, the FBI official leading the probe, wrote to one of his colleagues just shortly after Mueller was appointed. And he was mulling, pardon the pun, <laughs> over whether to go to work for Mueller. He, he was hesitant. He ultimately did and then was dismissed a few weeks later. But in his text, he said he was hesitant because, quote, there's no big there there. So that, that, that to me, was a pretty interesting piece of evidence because it, it, it became public in January of 2018. Here's the person. By now, at that point, the investigation that he opened was 10 months old. There was no other person in the government who had a better window into the investigation than Peter Strzok. And he was saying, there's no big there there. And he was saying it in an unguarded moment that he never thought would become public. And of course, it did become public. When it become public, it became public, it got picked up by a, a lot of news organizations. The Wall Street Journal, for example, put it at the top of a news story in their, in their news section. The New York Times, however, chose not to write about it then or any time since then. And the Times, I asked the Times about this. I, I quoted, I think, someone in the piece anonymously who, who was from the Times that we should have run this, mm -hmm. meeting the, the Strzok text. And the Times' response to me was, well, we were thorough and looking at this and we followed our, you know, normal editorial standards. So that, that's another kind of thing I pointed out, which you would call kind of leaving things out that arguably are important or material to the, to the story or the narrative. Some of the other flaws, I would say, include overuse and misdescription or misleading descriptions of anonymous sources. Sources familiar uh, with. I, you, yes. I mean, they, yes, I, I agree with you on this 100%. You know, one of my findings was, and look, I, I've used anonymous sources in my career, not incessantly, but, you know, occasionally. And in this story itself, there were a handful of anonymous sources, but I'd say 95% of the story I wrote was based on either documents or on the record quotes or material. And so I did discover that the Times, during Trump's presidency, used the phrase person familiar with or persons familiar with or people familiar with over a thousand times. And as I point out again in the story, the, the last executive editor that I worked under, Bill Keller, that was something that annoyed him. And he would send out memos frowning on it and saying that's such a vague description. It could mean the reporter themselves. So, and I'm not going to limit, you know, the New York Times, many other news organizations, the Post, et cetera, off, also use the same descriptor. And I think it's, I think it's, it, it's, it's not helpful to the reader. And, and I, you know, in, in my afterward, I, I go on about another form of sourcing that's anonymous and got someone from the FBI, in fact, the person who was the head of public affairs for the FBI during the height of the, the Russia investigation 
to describe for me a situation that he saw at the FBI involving anonymous sources. And if you'd like, I can. Yeah, please. This listeners. is Mike Corton. Yeah, yeah right. Mike Corton. Yeah, who who also served in Congress, so he knows kind of the the way things work from both ends of the the pole. And he 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 described for me a situation where the FBI would go up to the Congress and brief them in a closed session. And they'd try and give the the Congress the best, fullest briefing they could. Then they would discover that the media would report snippets of what had been briefed. It might come from a, a Democratic congressman. It might come from a Republican congressman. But they, would, they wouldn't be described that way by the news organizations uh, they would take they would take very neutral and i would argue misleading descriptors so they would say according to an american official mm. according to a government official according to an intelligence official uh, and all of those would be used as a way to disguise the fact that the actual source was somebody in Congress who had a partisan bent to their position. And as Mike Corton said to me on the record, the the reporters, the, the Congress people would cherry pick the information and the reporters would not even know that they had been cherry picked. And of course, the readers or viewers of the content would have no idea either. And so what that means is that if you read something and according to an intelligence official, you would maybe assume that's maybe some career analyst at the CIA or somebody who's a professional it, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that it was, you know, an Adam Schiff or a Devin Nunes or somebody in Congress who's on the intelligence committee mm. who all of a sudden is transformed into an anonymous intelligence official. So that, that would, that would be one of the things that I think took place maybe rampantly. I, of course, can't really calculate or judge how much it was used, but I would say it was probably pretty rampant in the Russia investigation. And the, there were tons of briefings that were given up on the Hill and tons of stories that then came out, which didn't have the full version of what really was relayed. Do you think, just to follow up on that, in this period that senior FBI officials, I'm thinking of Jim Comey and Andrew McCabe and even Peter Strzok, do you think that in their interactions with the public or with Congress or the press that they were straight shooters? Were they were they trying to kind of express the limits of what they knew? Or do you, do you think that they were in some ways also leaving the impression at least, I mean, I think this is the case, I should put my cards on the table with Comey in how he presented certain information and when he decided to announce an ongoing investigation, leaving the impression that there was more there there than there was at that moment. I don't know if you can talk to that, but I would love to kind of get your sense of that. Cause, cause yeah. Strzok, I mean, I say cause struck was, I mean, you point out struck was critical of a major New York times piece about yeah. the, the context between right, the Trump right, internally, right. but there were other times when he would testify, when he would make it seem like there was, you know, especially now that he's out of government, then he'd make it seem like, wow, you know, this was like, you know, Trump is, is disloyal and he might as well, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like, I, I don't want to characterize certain individual people, but mm -hmm. I, there, there, there are some kind of anomalies or, you know, really puzzling questions 
let's take Strzok in the New York Times, for example. You know, based on my on-the-record interview with Strzok and on FBI documents, he was a source for the New York Times. And yet, as you point out, on three different occasions, the New York Times wrote pieces that he eviscerated in Privately, private. Right. Yes. Now, and the piece you were referring to, which is, you know, one of the more seminal pieces that, that Comey later went on to testify about after he left the FBI and say in the main it was not true. In that case, Strzok did a detailed annotation of the piece almost in real time. It, it later became public and it took issue with at least seven or eight things in the piece, including the, the lead and headline in the piece, just saying it just wasn't true. Now, he told me that that memo that he did was done specifically for the leadership of the FBI, including Comey and Andrew McCabe, the deputy. And then what happened is that, the, of course, the, the story caused an explosion and I have quotes from Bob Woodward and Alan Coulson of the Wall Street Journal about sort of how, how much sort of that, the commotion it did cause. You know, then it turned out that, that Andrew McCabe had a meeting at the White House soon thereafter and told the White House, I think, Rance Priebus, the chief of staff, that the story was bullshit. Those are his words. And that, of course, would be an accurate description of what he saw from from Peter Strzok's annotated, you know, evisceration of the piece. Then the White House tried to brief reporters and tell them about this. And the FBI and, refused to talk to the press about it. And, and, the, right. and the FBI refused to talk to the press about it. Now, they did, they did fall back on principle they have, which they don't talk about open investigations. And, which is not true. Well, of course, you know, for every principle, there's an exception. And, and, you know, James Comey famously, you know, violated that exception when he talked about the, the Hillary Clinton email investigation. And later so, when he announced before the House Intelligence Committee that there was an open investigation in the Trump right. campaign. So it's like, correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So look, I think that there there's some uh, there are clearly some issues related to how the FBI handled this case and what they said and uh, if 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 and when Durham ever writes a report and it becomes public we may get some further insights but I, I don't know what that you know one way for for sure but I I do think that it's fair to say that the relationship between the media and the FBI in particular is, is an interesting one and a symbiotic one and and you have to wonder to go back to the first part of your question, why Peter Strzok and the FBI cooperated so much with the New York Times when they were so critical of the pieces they were writing. And it's one thing you get a piece wrong and then, you know, so the FBI says, look, you got it wrong. You need to correct it. And in fact, that's sort of what was happening with that piece in February. And two weeks later, the Times did another piece, and Strzok is texting. I thought they were going to do a correction. Instead, <laughs> they instead they doubled down on their inaccuracies. Those are his quotes. So, but I, to answer my own question, the the New York Times was considered 
the best of all the news organizations by the FBI. And not only that, this used to be in my piece, but it got cut out, so I'll <laughs> disclose it now. Mm -hmm. In January of 2017, at the approval of the Department of Justice, the FBI opened up to the New York Times for the next three months to talk to them about the closed Hillary Clinton email investigation. And so the, the New York Times had access and was in the halls of the FBI right. off and on for three months, and it resulted in a, an exhaustive piece that came out in April of 2017. So it's not often that a news organization gets that kind of window and cooperation, but the, the Times did. So I, I think that's a, a reflection of well, I mean, how they, J. How J. They Edgar Hoover partisan. famously had a whole correspondence unit with right. various journalists, yeah. and and it's hard. It's it's was was that a good thing? Did it? No, it wasn't. He he abused his supposed sure, friendships. Sure. I mean, at times, right. not to say that you can't have sources in the FBI. I have I've had sources in the FBI. I'm sure you have. Sure. It's just to say that once you get your once you, if your sources, it seems. I'm just saying this. I mean, I defer to you as a in journalism, but as a, my experience, if your sources are senior leaders in government, they have much more of an agenda than some guy who, you know, is just working the case and wants to get the truth out. Absolutely. I, I, I did have sources in the FBI and the lower down they were, the more trustworthy they were. If they were working on a case that was of interest to me, not, you know, yeah. talking about something that was out of their out of their league. You know, an, another thing I wanted to speak about the New York Times, a lot of people have asked me, why did you focus so much on the New York Times? And so I'd like to yeah. answer that, that question. And there, there are basically three reasons. One is it's the most widely viewed influential news organization in America. The second reason we've alluded to, which is that there are actual FBI documents criticizing their coverage repeatedly. I, I could find no similar documentation relating to other news organizations. And the third reason is that the Times allowed a filmmaker oh, into yes. the newsroom. A lot of Showtime documentary. Right. Uh, for a Showtime documentary that ran in 2018 called The Fourth Estate. So that that filmmaking took place for more than a year. It's, it began in, in January, 2017. And, you know, in my piece, of course, I quote extensively from the documentary because it's, it's pretty rare to get an inside look at editorial decision-making and discussions. And that's in fact, what was available now. Of course, it wasn't the whole, you know, shebang, and they weren't talking about anonymous, their anonymous sources in the film. But nonetheless, there's a lot of back and forth between editors and reporters, including the day that Comey went up to the Hill and testified that their story was wrong. Right. And, and there, right on the camera, were the editors reacting and, what are we going to do? This is, you know, et cetera. So that, that's another reason why the focus was on the New York Times. Yeah, well, so I, I want to ask you something. It's sort of a level setting, but it's important because there have been some criticisms of your piece that I don't think have much merit, but I want you to respond that 
you decided to do an autopsy because the Mueller report failed to find a conspiracy or the initial charge of collusion in 2019. Now, as a general rule, it's not just I don't not just in the context of your piece. There are still lots of people who are kind of in the discourse who will say, no, if you look at that report, there are all of these instances of contacts. And if you look at the report, it's, it outlines terrible behavior from Trump. He just couldn't prove, you know, the legal standard of conspiracy. I mean, this is an argument before your piece ran. I mean, was published. It's, I've encountered it, you know, yes. for the last. I'm familiar. Yeah, I'm familiar so, with it. I yes. mean, I, I, I have my own criticism, but I'd love to kind of hear your response to this because it sure. seems yeah. like gaslighting. Yeah. Like, yes. No, I'm I'm happy to address it. And of course, I've heard it and seen it. Yeah. And and I would say a couple things. First of all, yes. And I do say in the piece, I quote what the Mueller report found. And then I say, nonetheless, you know, people thought there were over 100 contacts that right. were, you know, put into the Mueller report. And therefore, you know, maybe you couldn't find a conspiracy, but there sure were a lot of contacts and that doesn't look good. And so my answer to that is to actually go back and quote from the documentary film at the New York Times, because it goes right to the heart of this issue. And in the film, the reporter, Mark Mazzetti, is on the phone with Dean Becquet, the editor of the New York Times. And he's saying, you know, we found that there are these intercepts of repeated contacts between Trump aides and senior Russian intelligence officials. And that was the story they wrote. And Dean Baquet, the editor, asks what I think is a really good question, the exact kind of question an editor would ask. And he said, well, you know, contacts, I'm kind of paraphrasing, and people can either watch the movie themselves mm -hmm. or read my piece, but the contacts can be innocent or they can be sinister. Right. And, you know, in that spectrum, there's a big difference between, you know, an innocent contact that might be for business reasons or political reasons or a more sinister contact that's maybe part of some secret pact or collusion or conspiracy. And he, he asked the reporters, can you delineate and, and get some specifics, you know, up high in the piece, what, what we call in our business the nut graph, which is a paragraph up high that kind of summarizes yeah. you know, what the piece is going to say. And he thought the reader needed these details so they could distinguish between what might be innocent and what might be sinister. And, well, the piece wasn't able to do that because they didn't have that information. And, and curiously, it was two weeks later in another New York Times piece that they they entered into a discussion that really responded to the editor Dean Becquet's question, and they explained a lot of contacts can be innocent, as I said, they can be political contacts, they can be business contacts, and so therefore, just because there were a lot of contacts, doesn't mean they were nefarious or sinister. It, it depends, and so I think that that's kind of salient to the discussion of, well, what did Mueller find? And then, so let's take that to the next step. Well, what's the most sinister looking contact for people who saw this in, in a dark light? 
And according to the Senate Intelligence Committee, yeah, according the to the Mueller report, right. it's it's the contact between Manafort and Constantine and Kalimnik. And this is, this is just a level. It's, Manafort was the campaign manager for a couple months in 2016. He was fired in August of 2016. But, you know, he was he was the, the guy who was who sort of took over in the summer in that period after he won the, the primary. Right. And Kalimnik had been for some time a business partner of, of Manafort's in Ukraine where they were doing a lot of business. He was originally born, I believe, in the Belarus area of Russia, and but he he was in Ukraine and he was his business associate. And so I I go into this in detail in my piece and lay out what the 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 charges are, what the evidence is. I don't, I don't know whether you want me to recount it, summarize it or not. But. I mean, yeah, we can summarize it. I mean, I, I think it's an important thing because this is the, this is what a lot this of This is people, Exhibit A. Yeah, this is right. Exhibit A and in and, and the indictment of, of, of Trump and Russia. And so I, I spent some time dealing with it and trying to discuss it. And so the first thing is, is Kalemnik a spy? Mueller, and, Mueller says no, and the Senate Intelligence Committee says yes, but they don't tell us what, what they, how well, they know. <laughs> well, Mueller didn't say no. He said he just was deemed to be, by the FBI, you know, some sort of intelligence asset or something. He didn't yeah. say he was an intelligence official. Right. So we know for a fact, thanks to the New York Times, that, that Kalimnik was investigated by Ukraine right. in 2016 for possibly being a spy. And according to Kalimnik, what he told the New York Times in 2017 was that, that he had never been contacted. And if the Ukrainians, who, were, of course, even back then were no fans of the Russians, had any strong evidence that he was a spy, he would have been arrested. So no, no charges were ever bought. The, the allegations that have come out in various official settings have no evidence behind them. Doesn't mean there isn't evidence, but it, it it doesn't also mean there is evidence that they've cited. The only known evidence of his affiliation with governments are State Department and FBI documents that show he was actually a source and considered a quote sensitive source for the State Department in Ukraine. So on the issue of is he a spy? It's certainly not proven. It's murky. And if he was a spy, he was had to be a hell of a spy because he was actually spending a lot of time interacting with people in the U.S. government. And, and you know, that so that that remains kind of an open question. And then the, the next issue is with his interactions with Manafort, did they constitute some form of collusion, or were they just business financial matters? And on that, again, the evidence tilts towards, again, based on testimony given by Manafort, Gates, and then interviews Kalimnik's done with people that their interactions were financial. And mm-hmm. the, the one, and you know, man, look, I knew about Manafort, wrote about him 40 years ago when he was with Black Manafort and Stone. It, it, you, the one thing you can say about him is he's into money. Yes. And so the, the, the meeting that the meeting that he had with Manafort and Kalimnik had a meeting in New York in August of 2016. 
and that that again is you know a big exhibit in the case people want to bring showing collusion and at that meeting Manafort is said to have provided some polling data some public some private to Kalemnik but according to the testimony cited in the Mueller report by both Manafort and Gates and remember Gates at that point was a cooperating witness and was was no friend of Manafort's at that point and was ratting him out Gates testified that it was meant to deal with some debts Manafort had with a, a Russian oligarch named Deripaska. So again, you know, contacts, contacts, a lot of contacts, but let's just, we're looking at what's considered the most questionable contact. And, and again, the case there is, is far from certain or far from, you know, definitive that anything nefarious took place. And I, and I would just point out that on the Democratic side, Christopher Steele and Fusion GPS, the people responsible for the Steele dossier, were contractors for Oleg Deripaska through his lawyers. Or his law through his lawyers. Through his lawyers to Correct. retrieve money from Paul Manafort that Manafort owed to Deripaska. So my question has always been if Manafort's approximation to people around Deripaska is a red flag from an espionage or intelligence perspective, then why would there not be also a another problem? Then why why would you why would you not be interested in looking at this other connection that, you know, the main contractor for opposition research hired by the Hillary Clinton campaign also had contracts not only with Deripaska, but ironically with this woman, Natalia Veselnaskaya, who was the person who met in the Trump Tower meeting. Correct. And so Correct. it's like, okay, if this is the evidence of collusion, then how do you explain these other connections that kind of on the other side of the lake? Yeah. Well, and finally, Deripaska did work for the FBI. He certainly uh, did. Yes. Trying to recover Bob Levinson from Iran. So, you know, look, these people play a lot of a lot of sides. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes at the same time. And, you know, is it possible that that Constantine Kalimnik, some sort of information broker who goes around and peddles information he gets from here to there and this and that, you know, could be, it wouldn't make him much different than a lot of journalists yeah, who go around. I, I who, agree with that. Who, who, who take information. So look, I, I don't know for sure whether he's a spy or not, but the evidence, I, I only can deal with what's known and in the public record and what's documented and whatever's out there, I put in my piece. That's great. Uh, and before you go, I want to ask sort of a general question about the future of journalism on this. And that is this, you know, 50 years ago during the Watergate scandal, when I'm not here to defend Nixon or anything like that, but there was in some ways the idea of using more anonymous sources, reporting about ongoing investigations, you know, this was, you know, very meaningful approach to journalism. And I, I'm certainly, you know, we should all look at what Woodward and Bernstein did, which was a lot of work in all of that, you know, to do all of that. But maybe we should evaluate now, 50 years later, whether we're really informing or doing a public service when we write about ongoing investigations by the FBI, right? I mean, I, I, that's, that's kind yeah. of one of my big thoughts on all this. Yeah, well, look, you, you hit on a very good point, and And as someone who's practiced investigative journalism for a long time, I've, I've come to describe that kind of work 
as being one of two practices. One is what I call biopsies and the other are autopsies. Right. And, and a biopsy is if you'd have written a piece in the early 80s about the dangers of O-rings on the rockets. Right. And, and you know, maybe you might have prevented the, the shuttle from, you know, blowing up back then. The, an autopsy is going in after the disasters happened and doing a close look at what went wrong and what can we learn from this yeah. and all those kind of important things. But it's it's a lot harder to do a biopsy than an autopsy. And as we all know, you know, biopsies can come back positive or they can come back negative. And in reporting, it's, it's, it's a little bit of the same thing. I mean, one of the, I'll give you an example from my own career. One of the few stories I ever did at the New York Times that was never, that never ran involved BCCI, which turned out to be sort of the dirtiest, one of the biggest bank failures in history. Mm-hmm. And I did a story in 1989. I went all over the world and came back and said, here's a, a dirty bank that the regulators have no insight into. I interviewed the regulators in Liechtenstein, in London, and in Washington. And the Times didn't run the piece. And then mm. two, and a half, two and a half years later, you know, the bank collapsed and it was a huge scandal. And, you know, I'm, I'm not blaming editors or anything. What I'm saying is it's harder to do something and blow the whistle when the disaster hasn't happened. I agree with that. But my my question is specifically, I just think that there's so much, I don't know, potential for abuse, especially when there is. A, there, there is. When you're talking about an invest- ongoing investigation. Okay. So you so there's a question. And so I look at it like the Steele dossier. They briefed that Steele dossier to journalists during the campaign, and nobody except for Isakoff came away with anything that they felt like they could report. They looked into it. They couldn't verify it. And journalism Correct. worked. As soon as reporters learned during the transition yeah. that the FBI was taking the dossier seriously, they didn't need to ref- confirm it. They could no, just say they, it was of interest correct. to the FBI. Yeah. No, no, you've hit you've hit on a very you know sore subject, and and it's it's the salient point really in this whole saga because if it if if Comey hadn't briefed the dossier to Donald Trump on January sixth, two thousand seventeen. CNN wouldn't have run the story and wouldn't have printed it wouldn't wouldn't have printed it and who knows what would have happened and so that's the symbiotic relationship in which the journalists use the fact that the government's looking at something as the basis for doing their story and in fact Isakoff as you point out who was the first person to write about something from the dossier he only wrote about it because the the FBI was investigating it and he said that in his story and he was able to learn that. And, you know, is the sheer fact that the FBI is investigating something sufficient for you to write a news story? That's a really good question. And I think it depends upon. The FBI was investigating yeah. Richard Jewell, but it turned out that Richard Jewell was innocent. He was the person who was right. originally fingered for being right. yeah. the 1996 yeah. Olympic bombing. Doesn't I mean, mean, by the way, I've done it too. I've written about ongoing investigations. We sure. all have who's been in this business. It, it's not, I'm not trying. So I include myself. I will criticize myself here. Sure. 
but it's, sure, no, it's I, an I, easier I, news hook than getting the goods, as they say. Yeah, sure. Well, in this case, so one of the things that's unusual and and why I did this piece is so much the documentation came out. So if you go look at the actual, it's like two or three pages, electronic communication that officially opened the FBI investigation. Right. From July of 2016, it was written and approved by Peter Strzok. And by the way, the FBI has now changed its procedures. So somebody as low as Strzok can't be the sole authority and then, you know, approval. Yeah, for, for, a, well, for ongoing, for a political campaign, right? Exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, but, but if you go look at the actual electronic communication, and I quote from it in my piece, it's a suggestion of a suggestion. Yeah. That's, that's the basis upon which the FBI opened their investigation. And I think in retrospect, actually, if people actually knew that, I'm not sure they would have gotten all as excited as they did. In fact, the New York Times, which broke the story in December of 2017 about this opening of the investigation and how it started, because a lot of people were thinking it, that the dossier had been the right the predicate and it wasn't the F, the the times wrote a piece which by the way is included in their pulitzer prize package and if you this is all in my piece yeah. so uh, you know the the language that the times used about how serious this matter was and then compare that to what the actual document says yeah again a suggestion of a suggestion you know, it would have been nice to have known that you know, earlier on, but of course it didn't become public until much later. Well, Jeff Gerth, I want to thank you for your, you know, career in journalism. You've written a lot of really important stories, but this is a really important one for the Columbia Journalism Review. As I think other people have said, we were waiting to read something this comprehensive about the press role. As somebody who's been covering this issue, I have to take my hat off. I thought it was really some of the most thorough reporting on the entire affair. So thank you so much for coming on my my podcast and Congratulations again on a terrific piece. Or well, thank you. And thank you for your kind words. I appreciate it. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.